0: Hello, and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Tonight's programme takes us in a slightly different direction as we explore the influence of their Jewish heritage on two world famous musicians, Leonard Cohen and Barbara Streisand. voice of Barbara Streisand starting our programme this evening and setting a theme too, as later we'll explore the fascinating link to a set of Victorian glass plate photographs and the mystery of the location of the body of the Irish rebel Robert Emmett. Later, I'll be joined from their homes by photographer Colin O'Reardon and Brian Whelan. He's the assistant librarian at the representative Church Body Library in Dublin, as they both help unravel a mystery that goes back over 117 years. But first... Some of the great names in the world of music George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Neil Diamond, Lou Reed Leonard Cohen and Barbara Streisand all chair a Jewish heritage but does that influence their music? Well, Tonight I'm joined from his home in Dundalk by historian Yankee Fackler Yankee you're welcome It's May but let's start our chat tonight with a taste of Christmas Yankee, welcome to The Leap of Faith. A fascinating insight into the world of music and the Jewish faith. Start, if you would, please, with, with that well-known piece we've just heard, which is White Christmas.
1: Well, White Christmas, an absolute classic, and other classic Christmas songs, most of them were written by Jewish writers, which um, is a bit odd, isn't it? What was the foundation? And in other
0: words, where did, where did that, that group of musicians get their strength in Hollywood?
1: I think that they were all immigrant families, born in America, often first generation, trying to get their way out of the of the Jewish ghettos, uh, as you might call it, um, in New York. Music would be something that was very much part of their upbringing, because they'd probably have gone to synagogue, and if you go to synagogue, you can't help but hear a lot of uh, singing. So the idea of writing and singing was uh, quite prevalent, and it was a way up the ladder. And somehow this creativity burst round about the same time in the same few decades, and dozens and dozens of really talented um, songwriters uh, produced hit after hit after hit, not for the Jewish public, but for the general public.
0: And there was a tendency as well for some of the musicians to hide their Jewishness or their Jewish faith, for example, in changing their names, but one particular musician didn't do that at all. Barbara Streisand.
1: Yes, not only did she not change her name, she didn't change her nose. Now, that might sound like a facetious remark, but she says that from the very beginning, she was told you will not succeed in this business unless you have a nose job. You, you look far too Jewish, you look far too ethnic, you will go nowhere. And she said, but my nose is part of me and I am Jewish and I am proudly Jewish. And wh- whether I succeed or not will not be about my nose or my being Jewish, it'll be about my voice.
0: You said that that actually carries through in some of the way she, she portrayed her characters.
1: Well, she chose some very obviously uh, uh, Jewish characters in, in, in some of her movies where you know, she, was, uh, she found that very easy to, to, to be Jewish and, and to even insert little um, Yiddish expressions uh, and facial expressions, and this was a conscious choice. And of course, the culmination was when she um, played Yentel, which she wrote, directed, and produced, and starred in. Um, uh, so you can't get more Jewish than um, a, a woman trying to be a, a man in a in a ultra orthodox world of study. Um, fascinating uh, subject that uh, that she chose.
2: Papa, please forgive me. To understand me Papa, don't you know I had no choice Can you hear me praying Anything I'm saying Even though the night Is filled with voices I remember everything You taught me Every book I've ever read Can all the words In all the books Help me to What lies ahead the trees are so much taller and I feel so much smaller
0: Barbara Streisand there in Yental she also then of course uh, was was known for many particular songs but took the opportunity as well to sing and perform in Israel
1: she she loved being in Israel and she loved performing in Israel and audiences went quite wild so she she delivered two performances in Israel that absolutely knocked the socks off audiences one of them was in a big concert where she sang Israel's national uh, anthem Hatikva and the second occasion was a birthday bash for the late President Shimon Peres, where instead of opening with one of her standard hits, she sang a rendition of Avinu Malkeinu. Now, Avinu Malkeinu is one of the main prayers of the high holidays, meaning Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, that's the New Year, and uh, the Day of Atonement. and it, there's been a traditional um, melody for this for hundreds of years about 30 years ago a new melody was uh, composed and she then gave the most ah uh, the most beautiful heart-rending rendition of avinu Malkenu that had everybody just It was jaw-dropping and it has become a standard and it's been downloaded millions and millions of times on um, YouTube.
0: Let's hear that now. Thank you, Barbara Streisand there, and we're we're talking this evening uh, about uh, the musicians who carry their faith through in their music, or at least indeed their Jewish heritage through in their in in their uh, music. Another person is Leonard Cohen, who who at times has described himself as Jewish and Buddhist.
1: Leonard Cohen has had a very did have a very long uh, spiritual journey, which took him all over the place. If you listen to his lyrics, and there are many lyrics. There are lots of allusions to uh, Christian um, symbols. And yes, he, he, he was a Buddhist monk for a while. But he never ever, first of all, he never changed his name. He was very proud of his name and of his tradition. And so he, if people say, well, isn't it odd for you to be a Buddhist monk? He said, yeah, but I'm still Jewish, so. <laughs> which was quite disarming and not exactly, I think, what people expected to hear. This was a man who was very Jewish to his core, and he was influenced greatly by the recent history of the Jewish people. Leonard Cohen's allusions to the Holocaust crop up in unexpected places and in unexpected songs. He had a smash hit with Dance Me to the End of Love, and the opening lyrics are Dance Me, your beauty with a burning violin now a burning violin is cohen's way of describing the quartet that played music at the entrance to the concentration camps as jews were brought in and taken straight to the inferno so you can see that the um if you like the racial memory of the holocaust was deeply embedded inside his, uh, his psyche. Dance me to your beauty with a burning violin
2: Dance me through the planet till I'm gathered safely
0: Tell me about the relationship that he had with a cantor from, from his own synagogue.
1: <laughs> so, first of all, he came from a family of rabbis. So, um, rabbinics and um going to the synagogue he he was doing that as a child Um, he went to the synagogue he studied um, in the sunday school in the synagogue and he would have been very familiar with what's called cantorial music because um, many synagogues in those days had a cantor who is cantor is is separate from the rabbi the cantor is there to lead the services and he's chosen because of his uh, voice um you don't have to have a good voice to be a rabbi uh, but the cantor leads the services cantors in jewish synagogues come to the uh, fore of their art on the high holidays that i mentioned earlier Um, people will come to listen to a a good cantor, and they'll, they'll wait a whole year for the privilege of hearing him intoning the liturgy on uh, on the high holidays on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So we know that um, Cohen kept, if you like, he kept tabs on his old synagogue where he had his own bar mitzvah uh, in Montreal, and right at the very end of his life in the last uh, 18 months or so, when he was working on his last record, which was um, You Want It Darker, he decided that he wanted to use the cantor and the choir from his own synagogue in Montreal to accompany him. Now, he, he was quite... Elderly and quite infirm by this stage, and he was living out in L.A., and he really wasn't well enough to go um, to Montreal as he had planned. But he, uh, he, he got the um, cantor, uh, who is um, Gidon Zellemeyer and the choir, and they did their part. Now, if you listen to this record, first of all, it's, it's very haunting and you can hear just by the tone that he's saying goodbye through the lyrics he says hineni hineni which is a hebrew word for here i am Uh, i'm ready O lord Um, which is really somebody saying okay i'm i'm ready to meet my maker um right at the end if you listen right at the end of the song there is a solo bit by the cantor which is pure um cantorial music um and it's absolutely it's 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 haunting it's beautiful and it was a remarkable uh, mix between uh, um his cohen's trademark um singing and um cantorial music in the background
0: let's hear that piece now leonard cohen i'm ready my lord singing also with the cantor gideon Zalomar. He, he, he. Wanting indeed. Yankee, uh, you have some stories in relation to Leonard Cohen.
1: Well, the very first time after a 15-year correspondence between Cohen and uh, Zelimeyer, they only met for the first time at the press conference to launch the You Wanted Darker album. And Zelimeyer presented a very emotional Cohen with a Yom Kippur prayer book that Cohen's late sister had won at the synagogue when she was 12 years old for excellence in her Jewish studies.
0: Yankee Faklo, thank you for joining us on the Leap of Faith tonight.
1: Thank you.
3: I have but one request to ask at my departure from this world. It is the charity of its silence. Let no man write my epitaph, for as no
0: man who knows my motives dares nor vindicate them, let not prejudice or ignorance asperse them. That's the voice of the famous Irish actor, Michael Macleamor, delivering the closing lines of the speech from the dock of the Irish rebel, Robert Emmet, sentenced to death for organising the failed 1803 rebellion against King George III. Emmet was later executed publicly in front of St Catherine's Church, Thomas Street, Dublin, and his body was interred by the authorities. But where? More on that in a moment. Well, joining me to discuss this intriguing story and its connection to a box of glass plate photographs from their homes this evening are photographer Colin O'Reardon and Brian Whelan. He's the assistant librarian at the Representative Church Body Library in Dublin. Thanks for joining us this evening. Colin, let me start with you. There's a great story about why you found these old photographs, but where did you find them?
3: Well, Michael, I was working in the Irish press at the time. I was a, a lowly photographic printer in, in, in the day. And um, we were tasked with clearing out an old storeroom. Basically, it was a storeroom over an old print, over the printing press. Now, there were a lot of boxes in there, so they were quite dirty from all the ink coming up from the print press. And um, we discovered boxes with glass plate negatives in them. Now, these would have been the old photographs taken by staff photographers since 1932. And they weren't in great shape. Nobody really knew what was there. So we were tasked with cataloging the whole lot then after that. And in the process, like I came across this little square box, which was in fairly good condition considering where it had been, and um, decided, well, let's have a look. There were squares i said sort of two and a quarter square which would be the the sort of format rather than the the five five and a quarter inch glass plates and uh, so immediately they, they were not irish press anywhere wherever they came from so having a look through them anyway i discovered they were all sort of really old men in top hats and digging graves and stuff and i thought oh, this looks this looks really horrible uh, what would you do with this so anyway I looked at them a couple of times and sort of reckoned, well, somebody has gone to the the trouble of photographing this particular event back in the day. And I guess it was sort of 19th century. Um, So they must have been important at the time. So put them away. We'll have a look at them later and and figure it all out. That happened a couple of times with a few house moves. You know, you would come across them again. I must check those out and have a look. In the meanwhile, you know the, your, your resources for, for investigating all of this um, are very, very thin and narrow. There's no internet um, because these I discovered, um, I think it was about 1985, 1986. And as technology started to evolve, there was a little bit more information available on the internet, but it was still very slow. I had an idea, looking at one particular photograph of this little old lady, you can see the skirts down to the ground, walking down the street, and there was a big Bovril sign and other hoardings on the wall. And I remember seeing similar photographs of Abbey Street, Lower Abbey Street, and thinking it was the church, what they called the Scots Presbyterian Church in Abbey Street. It's uh, where the VHI now reside. Um, I went over and had a look, comparing the glass plate with the church. And the particular shot of this little old lady, it only shows a tiny section of the church and a window. Now the brickwork was kind of similar, but the window, nothing like it. So that sent me on a search Then all the churches in Dublin that I could find that might have had some sort of a resemblance, drew a blank every time. Eventually, I found an image much later on in Wiki- Wikipedia, believe it or not, that showed the doorway. And examining the two closely together, there was the window. Uh, it, it had to be it, as far as I was concerned. Um, moving on from there, I could find no more information. And I was you know, at, at odds with myself. Where am I going to put these? What am I going to do with them? Is this somebody I could give them to? Then um, I was sent um, as a photographer, our independent newspapers to St. Mickens the day the two Dublin archbishops were there. There had been a break in and there was a desecration, particularly of uh, very historic old graves, one of them 800 years old. And um, I met the diocesan communication officer, Lynn Glenville. And I, I was, sort of brought it up in conversation. I said, Look, I have these, I'd like to do something with them do you know where i could go with them and um she said she'd check into it short while later i got an email from uh, dr susan hood um, from the uh, RCB library and uh, we arranged a meeting showed her what i had and we had a good discussion about them and you know speculating as to what they could be and where they came from and uh, left them with her and her team took it from there and um I have to say, absolutely amazing what they what they turned up.
0: Well, um, let's, let's bring Brian in on this one, because Brian Whelan's with us sure. as well from the representative Church Body Library. Uh, and I suppose you know, you've you set a really good story here for so far, Colin, of, of a mystery box with glass pegs in it, pictures, not quite sure where they were. You made a little bit of an effort, as I said, to find out where it might have been. And here at this chance meeting, another doorway opens. Um, Brian, from your side of the story, what did you hear and what was happening?
2: Um, so I think at, at that stage, um, I, think, I think Colin had already identified it as St. Peter's, although maybe somebody else had, uh, had identified it as St. Peter's. Um, and I think um, Colin uh, um, had identified it as possibly being late 19th century uh, due, to the, um, to, due to the close um, of the people that were in the images. And uh, we also worked, the RCB Library worked with Colin O'Riordan, so a different person. Uh, he was a general manager of the Irish Architectural Archive to get these uh, glass slides uh, digitized uh, to the Mm -hmm. standards. So (laughs) Colm O'Riordan helped to uh, date the photos to after 1889 uh, because of that Bovril ad that Colin mentioned just there. Um, So Bovril as a company were formed in 1889, so it had to be after that date. So that was very, very helpful. So we had a location and we had a rough period uh, of time um, so with that, um, I was tasked with uh, seeing what we could uh, do with regards to identifying the images. Okay, so we, let's set the scene a little
0: bit further because the images actually at this stage feature a lot of very well dressed individuals, uh, plus a man who's doing a bit of hard work with a pick uh, yeah. uh, down into the into the graves. Do we know what was actually happening in the pictures?
2: we didn't at the time i mean the the assumption would obviously be that there was an excavation of sorts uh, but with regards to to, to what it was um, there, there there was no indication um on the box that that uh, the glass slides were um housed from uh, colin so that was uh, where the research uh, uh where uh, we were supposed to be going from there So we had that time period, uh, 1889, and we knew that it was St. Peter's uh, Church, which um, is um, an old church that's no longer in existence, uh, but it was on um, Anger Street uh, there where the YMCA is now. So we have a full list of um, vestry books for uh, that church um, stretching back from 1686 um, all the way up until uh, 1976. Um, So basically uh, we, Took down the uh, uh, vestry books from um, 1889 and just went through methodically uh, up until I saw something that might have been um, indicative of um, an exhumation um, of the graveyard. The problem being that um, not all communication or events will be recorded by vestry books, but uh, I did come across um, an entry on 19th of March 1903, which uh, was uh, just noting that uh, communication had been received from a certain doctor. Thomas Addis Emmet, um, who was the grandson nephew of um, uh, Robert Emmet, um, the United Irishman, um, and Doctor Emmet was requesting permission uh, for uh, to be able to dig um, on the graveyard at, at St. Peter's, which was located behind the church.
0: Okay, so we now have a, a new story, I suppose, Colin. In this sense, yeah, yeah. because we have an event, we have a date, and the the idea that people were looking for something. In essence, they were looking for the body of Robert Emmett.
3: Indeed, and uh, most interestingly, in, in the box of slides, I think it was the 13th slide. Now, whether they sort of fit in that order or not, I don't know, but there was a photograph of a skull. Now, whether that was Robert Emmett or not, I guess we'll never know, but um, it was it was of particular interest when I got through to the bottom of the box. Um, what was interesting from you know, a photographer's perspective was looking at all of these uh, photographs of people in the close of the day. You could see the social divide between the two. There's, as you say, the chap with the, the pickaxe down in the hole, working away while he's being watched and probably being told what to do from above, you know? Um, that that was probably my my draw to holding onto these and maintaining them, if you like, just to sort of glean as much information as
0: I can out of these things, you know? And Brian, what have you done with the, with the pictures? Can people see them?
2: Yeah, so um, as I say, we, we worked with Colin Reardon in the Irish Architecture Archive. Um, so uh, we have all the glass slides digitized and we um, basically have them um, available online through um, our Archive of the Month, uh, which is a blog spot that we have on the RCB Library webpage. Um, and we also promoted the uh, blog on our social media accounts.
0: And we'll put a link to, indeed to the pictures from our own website at rte.ie forward slash sleep. But we haven't got to the bottom of the mystery, which was in 1903, Dr. Thomas Ades- Emmett was looking for the body of his ancestor. Did he find him?
2: From what I've been able to determine, um, he wasn't able uh, to find the uh, body of Robert Emmet. What uh, what what we did after uh, finding the entry in the uh, vestry book uh, was we looked through newspaper articles from the time just to confirm that there, there was this excavation that had taken place. Uh, so Dr Emmet actually wrote an article for the Irish Times in I think it was in August of 1903 about an excavation that occurred in Saint Peter's on the sixth of July in 1903. So that's that week is is where we've dated those photos and um, to So. The newspaper article that Dr. Emmett wrote uh, stated uh, conclusively that they were unable to find uh, conclusive proof uh, that the body of Robert Emmett had been found.
0: Colin Raiden, the photographer who found the images, and Brian Whelan, the assistant librarian at the RCB Library. Thank you both for joining us this evening on The Leap of Faith. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. And that's our programme for this week. As always, you're welcome to email us the address faith at rte.ie. From our producer, Sheila Callahan, broadcast coordinator, Jarl Holland, and me, Michael Cummin. Stay safe and good night.